we are seeing study after study after study that are basically pointing in the exact same direction, which is some variation of a plant-predominant diet. Mm -hmm. Now that may include a plant-exclusive diet, mm -hmm. but it may also be something that's like, meaning most of your calories. Yeah, so we'll explain that a little bit. What does plant-predominant mean exactly? Right, so plant-predominant is not determined by like the amount of space on your plates that is consumed by plants because that would be a very um, unfair comparison uh, depending on what you're eating because certain things can be very high in calories and very small in volume. I think that the evidence is overwhelming and very clear that, that eating this way empowers and fuels a healthy gut microbiome. And when you optimize your gut microbiome, we derive the benefits directly because at the end of the day, they, these microbes, they are there to support us, to help us, to make us better. 70% of our immune system lives in the gut. And like literally a single layer of cells so thin that it would be taking a person's hair, like one single hair, and like shaving it to make it even thinner. That's what separates 38 trillion microbes from 70% of your immune system. That was Dr. Will Bolsowitz, a board-certified and award-winning gastroenterologist that is an authority on cutting-edge medical research on microbiome science. He's here to arm you with empowering information to achieve optimal health without restrictive dieting, but rather the mindset of abundance. His New York Times bestselling book, Fiber Fueled, is one of my favorite books on plant-based nutrition and is a must-read to understanding how to optimize our health. The connection of our gut health is directly correlated to our immune system, digestion, metabolism, hormones, mood, etc. So this information is so powerful. I hope you gain a lot from this episode like I did. It was a fascinating conversation. Let's get started. All right. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. B. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you for coming. Ellen, I am excited to be here. Um, this is my first time in Hawaii. And so I'm very I'm honored to be here. And I'm also grateful that you invited me to come and stay with you, your beautiful family, these thriving children. I mean, it's just unbelievable to be here and to see this. And so thank you so much. Of course. I've been actually wanting to get you on my podcast from the beginning. I definitely had you in my top like 20 list where I'm like, I definitely got to get him here. I love your enthusiasm, your energy, your positivity towards everything that you're sharing as a gastroenterologist. I'm practicing that, you guys, to make sure because it's, it's a hard word. It is. It's a little hard, right? Oh, totally. <laughs> um, but just like all that you share about the power of plants and gut health, and I'm just so excited to get into it with you to start with it. So do you think that to start, you could share a little bit about your story? Because I know you're really passionate about your transformation story. Sure. So um, hello, everyone. It's great to see you. I'm, I'm happy to be here on the show. And, you know, this is not what I expected my life to look like. This is not, you know, the, the position that I thought that I would be in. Uh, my dream was to be a medical doctor. That's what I always wanted. It was motivated by this sort of intrinsic desire to help other people. Um, so that's kind of just, I think, who I am, and I can't change that. And I went on a mission through sort of the traditional academic channels, four years of college at Vanderbilt, four years at Georgetown for medical school, Northwestern for my residency, the University of North Carolina for my GI fellowship. 
16 years total is what I, it took me to ultimately train um, to be able to do what I do. And I came out on the other side and the issue is that I was having problems in my own life. So during this process of sort of like giving everything that I had to becoming a medical doctor, working, you know, 16, sometimes 30 hour shifts, uh, six days a week, you know, like literally 80 to 100 hours per week. In the process of doing that, I elevated convenience in my life so much. And I also had this sort of like uh, motivation to find rewards through food. Mm. And so that combination turned out to be dangerous for me because convenience and the desire to treat yourself <laughs> uh, basically led to me eating a junk food diet and tons of fast food. Mm -hmm. And I thought I could get away with it. That's the way that I ate when I was in college. And I got away with it then. But the problem is that as I moved towards 30, I was no longer getting away with it. Okay. And I would look in the mirror and not recognize the person that I saw and not really love the person that I saw. Um, I was 50 pounds overweight. So this is like, I'm in my early thirties. I was 50 pounds overweight, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, tons of anxiety. I was actually doing insanely well from a professional perspective. Um, I won the highest award that Northwestern, like one of the top residencies in the program, they gave me the highest award they had. Wow. They paid for me to get a master's degree in clinical investigation, which I did in night school. So like professionally things are going great to an outsider. They'd say, wow, Will must be like on cloud nine. That's not how I felt. Mm -hmm. I was miserable, mm -hmm. extremely low self-esteem, extremely low energy. And, um, I knew that something had to change and I didn't really know how to do it. You know, here I am and I'm trained at Georgetown, Northwestern, the University of North Carolina in medicine, the top institutions. And yet the, the pills and the procedures that I was trained to use to try to heal people, I didn't want them myself. And I also didn't think they would really fix my problems. Wow. That's powerful. <laughs> so I needed an alternative choice. But the problem is like, what is the alternative choice? I haven't been taught that. And so I did sort of a dude thing where I was like, okay, look, if I work out hard enough, cause I'm, I'm a hard worker, I'm a type A. So I was just kind of like, look, if I work, if I work out enough, then I get to eat whatever I want. And that will be my reward for hard work. So I started working out six days a week and I was doing like literally no exaggeration, 30 or 45 minutes of strength training. And then if it was the winter time, I would jump on the treadmill and do somewhere between a 5K and a 10K. This is every day. And if it was the summertime, I would jump in the pool and I would do 50 to 100 lengths of the pool swimming. And so what I discovered with this experiment is that I could grow stronger. I could grow faster and more efficient at exercise, but the health issues did not go away. They were still there. And so I, I really didn't know what to do at that point. And, um, and then I became very, I would say, lucky because a person came into my life that completely transformed my views. And it turns out like fast forward, you know, basically 10 years, 
And this person is my wife. Wow. And we're growing our family. So cool. And, but at that time, she was a first date. And we went out to this restaurant in Carborough, North Carolina, which is right next to Chapel Hill. It's called Acme. And um, I love this place. And, you know, I was there getting my usual thing, like glass of red wine and a pork chop. And there's this person that I'm on a date with. And she says to the waiter, look, uh, the stuff that's on the menu is not stuff that I eat. Can you take these sides, like the beans and the, you know, the vegetable medley and like, can you take these five sides and just have the chef arrange them on a plate for me? And so I was kind of like looking over, I was like, who is this person <laughs> that I'm on a date with? Totally. And it's 2012 and I knew no one who was vegetarian, let alone vegan, mm-hmm. like not even one person. Mm-hmm. I'd never been exposed to this idea. It was like a radical idea from my perspective. Mm-hmm. But my eyes told me a story that was so clear and obvious. Here is this person who is enjoying her food. She is cleaning the plate. She is eating until she is full without any restrictions. And we finish our meal and I'm hung over from the meal. Like I need a pair of sweatpants. Nothing against sweatpants. I love sweatpants. <laughs> but like I need a couch so I can make moaning noises. Right? <laughs> And she's like, yo, phase two of the date, let's go, right? <laughs> totally. And so this experience opened my eyes and opened my mind to something that I had not really considered, but that I really needed to. What if the food that I had been eating my entire life, the food that was honestly like celebrated in our family, What if this is the problem? Mm -hmm. What if the normal way of eating is not actually normal? Totally. And it forced me to take a good hard look in the mirror at my life and the way that I was leading it. And I decided to make changes, but nothing radical. Like this was not Dr. B took the plunge. This was like, okay, yo, instead of going to Hardee's in North Carolina, we have Hardee's. Instead of going to Hardee's for the $4 meal where they give you literally a double cheeseburger and a chili cheese dog and fries and a beverage. And if that's not enough, there's an apple pie at the end. Like instead of stopping at Hardee's on the way home, why don't I go home and I take my blender and I fill it up and I hit the blend button and just like make dinner a massive smoothie and see what happens. And the, um, the, the changes were instant. Like I was doing these smoothies and it's like, boom, energy. I'm alive. Mm-hmm. I'm like vibrant. I'm like electric running through me. And uh, want to work out? Yo, do your smoothie and then smash a workout. Mm-hmm. Um, and my skin cleared up. My hair grew thicker. And... I looked like I was glowing to other people. They're like, dude, what's up with you, man? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. I'm doing smoothies instead of Hardee's. (laughs) (laughs) So this, uh, what happened was so profound that it motivated me to really 
change. And like this diet that I was eating, I loved. There is no question. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I hated my diet. I did not. Mm -hmm. I ate those foods because I enjoyed them. But this motivated me to walk away from that and try a different direction. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, as I started to feel energized, feel that electricity running through me, I started to double and triple, quadruple down and look for new opportunities to make healthful changes. And as I did this, these health issues that I had been struggling to like figure out how do I, how do I fix this? Uh, these health issues dissolved. Like all of a sudden weight is just melting off my body. My self-esteem is surging. I feel like, you know, the powerful young guy that I deserve to feel like, uh, my energy levels are through the roof. And so, um, it changed my life and I, Ended up, if you play it out over the course of a couple years, I lost 50 pounds. And as I made changes more progressively, because I was actually pescatarian for a period of time. But I got there and I was down about 35 pounds and I was definitely feeling better. There's no question. But I was like, what happens if? And so I decided to just give it a try. And I went all the way and I eliminated the eggs, the dairy, and got rid of the fish. And next thing you know, here I am and I'm in my late 30s and I weigh the exact same weight that I had in high school. Mm-hmm. Except I'm way stronger now. <laughs> and like effortlessly. Effortlessly. Eating until abundance. That, that is like the most beautiful part about it to me. No calorie counting. Um... I, I wouldn't even know how to do that, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I just ate until I was full. Mm-hmm. And it changed my life. So I was like so blown away by this that I start asking questions. Why was I not taught this in my medical training? Yeah. If this can do this much for a human being, like I want my patients to experience what I experienced especially as a GI doctor where like the foods that you're eating are directly correlated to your gut like how why is that like can you like uh, expand on that a little bit why is it that you think that medical schools are not teaching much about this how much about diet did you actually learn in medical school well I don't I don't believe that there is this like desire to withhold this information from people like I can just tell you that medical doctors we we go into this profession like to get the grades that you need to become a medical doctor, you have tons of options, mm-hmm. right? You could be an attorney, you could be a banker, mm-hmm. but you choose medicine and it's a hard life. Yeah, because you want to help people. Because you want to help people, mm-hmm. right? Like, are there bad people in this profession? Of course, that's true of every profession. Every profession. Right. But um, doctors implicitly want to help people. And the issue is that we work so hard mm-hmm. that there's nothing left. Right, we are just worn down, and if you don't make it easy for us, if you don't provide us with the education, if you don't create ways in which we can implement it in our clinic, mm-hmm. then it becomes very hard because you then are, in order to do something like this, you have to be radical. You have to go the extra mile. You have to make the decision that, like, you just worked twelve hours, and you got a family. And yet, despite this, instead of chilling on the couch and watching whatever the new HBO show is, you're going to open up your computer and dive back into expanding your education, right? 
who wants to do that? Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't think I wanted to do that, but I was compelled to do that because of the experience that I had in my own life. And I think that that's a big part of what motivated me. Mm-hmm. So why, why is it that we don't teach this in medical school? Um, coming back to this question, I honestly think, Ellen, that it's a matter of historical perspective on the evolution of modern healthcare. Like, mm. where did it start and how did we get to where we are today? And the problem is, just like so many other sort of organized systems that exist in a society, once you set it up, right, you create the Constitution of the United States and you set that ball in motion and you can make minor changes through an amendment. Mm-hmm. But those are not radical changes. Mm -hmm. The way that you set it up in the beginning ultimately determines what it's going to look like in 50, 60, 70, 80 years. That is such a good point. I've never heard anyone lay it out like that. So we come back from World War II. All right. It's 1945. The war is over. Our soldiers are coming home. And one of the most underrated things that took place during World War II that is not often discussed because it was such a, you know, barbaric thing that took place is we made major, major scientific discoveries. The most powerful of which was the discovery of penicillin. Mm -hmm. Penicillin changed everything. Mm. Prior to this, if you go back to the year 1900, the top three causes of death were all infections. Yes, totally. Right, Heart disease and cancer were not the problem. Mm -hmm. And we discover penicillin, like you can imagine how many lives are saved, how much worse World War II could have been if we couldn't control infections after a person gets a wound yeah civil war that's what people die from like stonewall jackson one of the most famous generals you know i'm a history nerd Ellen. <laughs> stonewall jackson one of the most famous generals he didn't die from a bullet wound he died from the infection that he got after the bullet wound weeks later mm. right so now we have this thing that allows us to like fight off the top three causes of death think of how powerful how blown away you would be Mm-hmm. If you were a medical community and you get it in a pill, gosh, that is seductive power. Yeah. So why don't we go after that? Mm. Right. Rather than asking people to change their diet or their lifestyle, which is hard. Yeah. And a lot of people, frankly, they don't want that. Mm-hmm. They want to just live the way they live and just give me the pill. Absolutely. And so our health system became um, basically built around this idea that there are shortcuts. Like a pill for every L. Through pills, through procedures. Mm-hmm. And so we create this entire health system around this idea. And then now we have empowered the pharmaceutical industry. We have empowered the um, uh, medical device industry. And then eventually it becomes too expensive. And so then we empower health insurance. And that brings us really forward to where we are in 2022, where we have these major stakeholders who are sitting at the table. Like I can just tell you as a medical doctor, we have zero power in Washington, Hmm. zero. Yeah. Because we're sitting at a table with the health insurance providers that are insanely rich, Mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical industry, medical device industry, that's insanely rich. And also at the table are like the hospitals. And they look pathetically small compared to the first two. Mm-hmm. Yet compared to the doctor, they are insanely rich. Mm-hmm. And here's the doctor and we're just like, look, we just want to help people. Mm-hmm. Please, can you just please be fair to us? Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't think, Ellen, that there's any doctor out there 
that will tell you that they like the way that our healthcare system is structured. That's interesting. So, Not a single one. I don't think so. I mean, bring forward, if, if you're listening to this at home right now and you are a medical doctor and you think that our healthcare system is good, um, that you like it, that you wouldn't change anything, I want to hear from you. Yeah. So, because I don't think that that's the case. You're right, because like they're, you're infiltrated in this career. You see what is going on that could be better, that could be improved on, and maybe it's not really happening, and you're just like stuck in this position, not in the position as a doctor, but in the position where like it's harder to shift the way that practice is done. We have to play by the rules mm -hmm. of the game. Yeah. And we're there are very few choices that a medical doctor is allowed to make in that process. Okay, so when you had this transformation, which is incredible, by the way, thanks for sharing your story. Um, it reminds me a little bit of me and Andrew's story, albeit somewhat different. We, Andrew and I had already been dating for multiple years, but I approached him one day like, babe, I'm going to go vegan. He thought it was crazy. He's like, I'm never going to do that. And then over time, he started to notice like, wow, Ellen's like feeling really vibrant and healthy after her meals. I'm eating my in and out and I feel terrible. <laughs> and so he started doing the same thing. I'm going to try a smoothie. <laughs> and he started doing a similar um, path where he just started to incorporate more and more plant foods and over time, like whole plant foods. And over time he's like, wow, I feel so much better. And then he just felt like you said, this gravitational pull to be like, I want to keep going towards this because it feels so good and it tastes delicious too. Right. Um, but what I was going to say is knowing this and where you came where you came from to where you got to with your transformation, did you start telling other GI doctors what was their thoughts, their response? How do your colleagues feel about, you know, how you feel about the power of plants with gut health? Well, there's, there is an um, educational deficiency that exists, and that educational deficiency is problematic because for me to get to where I was, it wasn't just that something clicked and a light bulb went off. This was instead that I had this radical transformation. I became compelled to then educate myself. Mm -hmm. And I spent years doing that. Mm -hmm. And I spent years implementing these ideas in my clinic as a gastroenterologist, trying to help my patients and seeing what works and what doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? This is not just like what you read in a research study. Many times the real world implementation of what of these scientific ideas or things that we study can be very unique or different. You, mm -hmm. We're real people. Individuals. We're individuals. And we yeah. have to look at ways to make it work on that sort of individual basis where there's, you know, there's a personality and there's different individual needs in terms of their microbiome and so many things. So, um, so I think that like there is a separation between where I ultimately got to when I started to go public with this versus where people are today when they're just hearing about what I'm doing. Mm. And, um, you know, so... For me, like 2013, 2014, this radical transformation has taken place and I'm now starting to you know, research this and bring it into my clinic and treat my patients. And they're having radical transformations. Maybe it's not weight loss. Maybe it's coming off the proton pump inhibitor that they're using to treat their acid reflux. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's putting their ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease into remission. Maybe it's their irritable bowel syndrome that they thought kept them on a restricted diet, unable to eat beans. And by fixing their gut, not only is their irritable bowel syndrome symptoms gone, but they're opening up their diet and the beans are back on the menu in a very abundant way. Mm -hmm. So there are many different ways in which a person can have an expression of health within their own life. It's not necessarily the way it was for me. Mm -hmm. But what I was seeing, like 
you have to understand that people see me now and they're like, okay, Dr. B's, you can call me an influencer if you want to, right? Dr. B has this big social media following. Um, like I am not a social media guy. Yeah, I wouldn't, I don't think, I think like if you're a physician, it's like you have an outlet, you're, you're sharing what you know with your outlet as a physician. It's different than like someone like myself who's not an expert in a particular field, you know what I mean? Like as in what they like, I don't even like the word influencer to be honest. I kind of think (laughs) that you are an expert. I just think that your area of expertise is something that's unique to your family. So true. Right? Okay. Yeah. So whereas like for me, the majority of my time is spent like again, 16 years of training prior to coming out and just just to be able to do my job mm-hmm. and then working really, really hard in my job with these people. Mm-hmm. So, but um, anyway, I in 2016, I felt compelled to share this story. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you something kind of funny? Yes. All right. So I haven't shared this story uh, publicly, I don't think before, to be honest with you. This is my first time sharing it. Well, I'm honored. So, yeah, this is an exclusive. <laughs> um, so we moved, our family, we were in Savannah, Georgia. For a couple years and we relocated to charleston charleston is home that's where my wife grew up that's where her whole family is and this is where we wanted to be mm-hmm. and we arrive and I, I wanted to get this story out there and i um i i had a contact with a local newspaper and i was i i basically put together like no exaggeration an entire pitch and this was more than just like hey i got an idea here's an email this was like, I wrote up an entire pitch and I wrote a series of articles to show them what this could look like. Mm-hmm. And I approached the newspaper. This is not the big paper where I live in Charleston. This is a very, 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 very small community paper. Okay. And I said, I am offering to write an article on health and wellness for your paper completely for free. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to give me a penny. Yeah. I'll give you my time. I'll, I'll, I'll revise where you want me to revise. Whatever you want, I'll do mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And they're just like, yeah, no. Really? We're not interested in that. That's so interesting. Yeah. I would have never started my social media account if they didn't. Hmm. It was a massive blessing. Hmm. And you're so like, I got to get this information out somewhere. I wanted to get it out. And I thought that the right way to do it was for me to write. Right. So like the idea of Instagramming was not something I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But they rejected me. And my wife said, why don't you just start a social media account? Yeah. And so I did. And this was not an overnight success. Like, yeah. People were not really interested in what I was talking about. I was talking about the same stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, fast forward. So that's the summer of 2016. Fast forward two years and went on a podcast with our mutual friend, Simon Hill Mm -hmm. from Plant Proof. Yep. And it was right around the same time that you went on his podcast. He had just launched it. Yeah. Love it. And um, it was episode 17 and it came out in in July of 2018 and it went viral. That's so cool. Um, So friends of friends were sharing this. It kept just spreading. And the experience that Simon and I went through brought us together where we have become extremely good friends now. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I realized that this information for the first time, I realized that this information that I was sharing, there was an appetite for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People wanted to hear about this. Mm-hmm. And so, 
just talking to my wife. This, it always comes back to my wife. She's the one who's kind of like the brains behind the operation here. And I went back to her and I said, I feel like there's something here. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it needs to be bottled up into something bigger, like catch the lightning in the bottle. Mm-hmm. And she goes, yeah, you need to write a book. Yeah. And guess what? I've been feeling this way for six months. Yeah. And I actually created a list of literary agents for you. Oh, she's amazing. She'd already done that. <laughs> Your book is incredible, by the way. I definitely recommend it to anyone who is listening. Fiber Fueled is definitely one of my top favorite plant-based books when I recommend. If I'm talking about my top, top favorite, you're definitely in the top three. It's an incredible book. I love your enthusiasm. I love just like everything you share. It's so up to date. It's so helpful for people to like learn practical tools on how to optimize your gut health. So I guess going back to that question then when it comes to like your other colleagues, how, what's the general consensus right now with, with like GI doctors and diet with gut health? There's slow adoption that's taking place. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a movement towards this is, this is, these ideas are not being rejected. Um, you know, for what it's worth, I've, I've never had a colleague to my face tell me that they thought this was crazy or wrong or anything of that variety or that I was hurting people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there's different levels of enthusiasm for adoption. And I think that what that actually comes back to once again is look, if they haven't, if they haven't been shown these studies, how are they supposed to know that the studies even exist unless Mm -hmm. they're willing to put in a significant amount of effort to find it? Do you get any resistance from GI doctors that are like, nah, we're just going to, you know, the regular medical, medical way with the prescribing pills and procedures is the way to go. And, you know, diet is like fluff and not really going to make a difference. Do you ever get that? I have gotten that with some specific topics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. The area where I've gotten that the most, the most pushback has been, again, from like other, from colleagues, other doctors. The area where I get have seen it the most is actually with inflammatory bowel disease, mm. like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And these, the interesting thing about that is that I think the the motivation to say, oh, well, diet doesn't matter, is that there are these like small, inadequate studies looking at diet for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease that don't show like massive, powerful, robust results. And so that leads to people dismissing the idea. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, you know, like Big Pharma has these... um, randomized controlled trials that they fund that cost them, you know, $150 million to do to show that their drugs do work. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's almost like people are unwilling to accept that there's the possibility of both that you don't have to choose one or the other mm-hmm. that from my perspective, the best healthcare brings in the best of diet and lifestyle first. Absolutely. But when appropriate and necessary, you have healthcare available to you to support you, right? Yes. We're not rejecting that. Totally. So uh, anyway, the the irony of this whole thing, and we're going to, I think, get into this more in a moment, is that every single GI doctor on the entire planet would agree that the microbiome is the critical part of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, mm-hmm. that it is actually a disease that originates in the microbiome, hmm. right? Every single GI doctor will say the microbiome is an important part of these conditions. Mm-hmm. 
doesn't diet affect our microbiome? Yeah. And the answer is a resounding, very clear cut yes. Yeah. So I think it's just moving people from, hey, if you believe the microbiome matters, diet has to matter. Has to matter. Right. But because it's not like laid it out laid out in medical school, like putting them connecting the dots necessarily, then it makes sense why why it takes some time to get there. Yeah, and the other thing to bear in mind is that the the pharmaceutical industry they um, have a way to make money on the back end when they develop new drugs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is how they're worth trillions of dollars, mm-hmm. and so because that they can take risks. And when they find a drug that they're encouraged by, they can spend $100 million on a clinical trial. Who is going to pay $100 million for a randomized controlled trial of diet and lifestyle? Right. So true. There's no one to step up and do that. So true. And then there's also the drug companies like funding funding a medical school's type of education system as well, which plays a role as well, right? Well, um, I, I think that may be a part of it. There, I think that the facts, though, regardless of whether that's a part of it, are very clear. Mm-hmm. In four years of training at an elite medical school, a place that I'm very proud of my education, Georgetown mm-hmm. University, in four years of training there, I had two weeks of nutrition. That's like astounding to me. It's, it's not surprising. Like you hear that a lot about different, even different fields within medical school. And even the nutrition training that I did receive, I think it's important for people to understand this was not like, hey, how do I talk to my patients? Like, how can I have a meaningful interaction in the clinic and help people to find a better diet and lifestyle? That's not what I was taught. What I was taught was, hey, if you get this weird vitamin deficiency that you literally will probably never see in your entire career, mm. if you get this weird like vitamin B5 deficiency or something like that, this is these are the six symptoms that could potentially be present. Okay, like what is that? Yes, yeah. that's so interesting. So are you generally optimistic when it comes to the proof of the plants, of plants for gut health? And like what, if so, what makes you optimistic about it? Is it like the scientific consensus that brought you there? Because it sounds like, you know, you found your own transformation and then you started doing the research and what did the research show you? Well, I'm optimistic that this is ultimately going to continue to expand and become more relevant. I do think that there are some hurdles that we need to overcome that are holding us back. You know, for example, financial holder uh, hurdles and things like that. Like you can't expect a doctor to take 20 minutes to talk to someone about diet and lifestyle if the entire encounter is supposed to only take 12. Yeah. Right. So we have to deal with some of these problems that we have. But that being said, like, do I think that doctors, doctors regardless of the system, are motivated to learn about this and to bring it into their clinic, 100% yes. What is the proof? The proof is the emergence of new societies that are focused, um, that are focused on, like, for example, the uh, ACLM, which is like the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, right? Like this, they are growing mm-hmm. exponentially. Mm-hmm. And their entire thing is about diet and lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? And part of this is that when you have empowered patients who are basically saying like, I want a doctor, I demand a doctor who understands diet and lifestyle and will counsel me mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. When patients say this, then ultimately the system has to meet those demands yeah. if the patients are gonna go to seek that out. Yeah, they're gonna go elsewhere. Right. So what is the proof then? What what do we know? Like, what is the scientific consensus about what is the best way of eating for to optimize our gut health? Well, I mean, we, we see uh, study after study after study 
whether you're looking at life expectancy, heart disease, cancer, mm-hmm. weight loss, choose where your priorities exist. And we are seeing study after study after study that are basically pointing in the exact same direction, which is some variation of a plant predominant diet. Mm-hmm. Now that may include a plant exclusive diet, mm-hmm. but it may also be something that's like predominant, meaning most of your calories. Yeah, so explain that a little bit. What does plant predominant mean exactly? Right, so plant predominant is not determined by like the amount of space on your plate that is consumed by plants because that would be a very um, unfair comparison uh, depending on what you're eating because certain things can be very high in calories and very small in volume. Mm -hmm. So like a quick example. Um, So if we had kale, right, and we had an entire pound of kale, that would be 100 to 125 calories, mm-hmm. right? So, and no one in the right mind could eat that much kale. That mm-hmm. is an absurd amount, mm-hmm. right? So it's like extremely high in nutrient density. Mm-hmm. It's extremely low in caloric density, low calories. Yeah. Flip side, uh, if we had a pound of oil, just as an example, does not matter what kind of oil we're talking about because the calories end up shaking out the exact same regardless. Mm-hmm. If you had a pound, 16 ounces of oil, that is 4,000 calories, Mm -hmm. right? So you literally have ounce for ounce, 40 times more calories in that oil compared to the kale. Mm -hmm. So you could literally have an entire pound of kale and the caloric equivalent in oil is a tablespoon. Mm -hmm. Totally. So when it comes to a plant predominant diet, it's, it's, it's not by the volume, it's by the calories. Mm-hmm. And we want our calories to be 70, 80, 90, or 100% originating from plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, a plant-based diet is like, frankly, most meals are probably plant exclusive, mm-hmm. right? Completely plant-based. And now a few words from our sponsor who helps make this show possible. We're brought to you today by Buffy. Getting a good night's sleep is so important for our physical and mental well-being. Buffy enhances my quality of sleep with their incredibly soft and sustainable bedding, helping to reset from busy days balancing work and being a mom. So what's so great about Buffy is that the bedding industry typically has a huge impact on the environment, but they decided to change that. Their products are made using only renewable and recycled materials, which makes them as soft on the planet as they are on your bed. And you guys, their cloud comforter is incredible. It has over 18,000 five-star reviews and is definitely the best comforter I've ever slept with. The cloud comforter is ultra breathable, softer than cotton, and keeps you at the perfect temperature to feel cozy without overheating. It's covered in super soft eucalyptus fabric and filled with fluffy fiber made from 100% recycled bottles. It's hypoallergenic, plus its high thread count shuts out dust, mold, and mites for a healthier sleep environment. The most important aspect of this comforter for me is that the average down comforter harms 12 geese, but Buffy's comforter is cruelty free. It feels even softer than down while keeping about 50 bottles out of landfills and oceans. And eucalyptus uses 10 times less water than cotton to grow. So use my code Ellen for $20 off orders over $80. You can dry a comforter in your own bed for free. If you don't love it, return it at no cost. And for the person who does choose, like for example, with a Mediterranean diet, Mm -hmm. for the person who chooses to include, say, fish or chicken, Mm -hmm. 
if you make that choice, that is not like, that is not a chicken breast with every meal. Mm -hmm. That is not a filet of salmon at every meal. That is like twice a week, you're having four ounces of salmon, which Mm -hmm. is a very, very small, modest portion size. Right. So going back to the the studies then, and you're talking about study after study, what is the difference between like cherry picking versus looking at the consensus and how do you know, how do you, how do you decipher what is the best way to look at science? I think it's very hard for the way person to make these distinctions. And I think even among healthcare profession, professionals, you, you really have to spend some time looking at the body of work. Mm-hmm. So one study, generally speaking, is not going to prove anything. Right. We will try in the interest of taking complex science and distilling it down to one study sometimes to illustrate a point, mm-hmm. right? But if you are like basically leaning into just one study to make your point and you don't have any other evidence to support it, that to me is a bit dangerous. Mm-hmm. In a perfect world, here's what we want. First of all, there is a hierarchy of evidence. All right, it's important for people to understand this. Yeah. Not all evidence is created equal. There are certain things that we point to and we go, that is like high quality. Mm-hmm. And there's other stuff that um, through the, the uh, course of time, we have discovered it's just frankly unreliable. Mm-hmm. That it may help to give us some clues, but that we really shouldn't be leaning into it because it's dangerous to do that. Mm-hmm. So this hierarchy of evidence at the very, very top are human studies. Mm-hmm. So human studies, the absolute best are what are called systematic reviews and meta-analyses, where if I were writing a systematic review and meta-analysis, I would like actually organize uh, and strategically do a review of the entire body of evidence Mm -hmm. and pull it all together into one study. And then the meta-analysis is where then I reanalyze using everything that I found. Mm -hmm. That is the number one most powerful thing. Mm Number two are randomized controlled trials, which we hear a lot. Those are interventional studies like this versus a placebo, Uh right? Um, So we hear a lot about those, but it's important for people to understand like there are limitations to randomized controlled trials. It's not the right study for every single topic. Uh All right. And then after that, big population studies, like let's take 25,000 people and let's monitor them and let's see what happens. Uh These are these are our top top studies. This is what this is where we want to invest our energy and our attention, because we know that this is the most reliable evidence. Mm-hmm. Flip side, uh, what is the stuff that is not reliable? Well, um, anecdotes. Yeah. Like, uh, hey, this is what happened with me. Yes. So, like, I share my personal story, but there's a body of evidence to back up everything that I said. Yes. Right. Yes. But like, I also know I've had patients who they smoke two packs a day and they drink a 12 pack every day and they live to be 90 years old. Yeah. Is that proof of a great lifestyle? Of course not. (laughs) Um, So anecdotes are very, very weak evidence. And um, when you move into studies that are not humans, I am not a mouse. Yes, no. (laughs) Right. So doing a mouse study may provide ideas. But you have to recognize them as simply ideas. Mm-hmm. That was never meant to be something that you would implement based upon that mouse study alone. You haven't even tested it in a human. Mm-hmm. And then there's the test tube stuff, which I just kind of think is weird. And I don't really get why, like, you know, for some people that is the end all be all. That's actually what we would describe as the weakest evidence that exists. Right. Like even an anecdote, the 90 year old guy who smokes and drinks, 
that's more powerful evidence than the, than the test tube study is. So anyway, I just think that the, the complexity of science is that we have to look at the whole thing. And honestly, Ellen, if we want at the end of the day to really have confidence that something is real, in a perfect world, we are seeing multiple different points of evidence all pointing in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And when you have that, when it's like, okay, the randomized controlled trials, the population-based studies, the systematic review and meta-analysis, and oh yeah, by the way, also those mechanistic studies, mm -hmm. they're all pointing in the same direction. That's as close as you're ever going to get to the truth. Right. And is that what you found when you did the research about like the way that you were eating, you're experimenting on your on yourself, and then you're, what did you find when you did the research? I think that the evidence is overwhelming. I think that the evidence is overwhelming and very clear that that eating this way empowers and fuels a healthy gut microbiome. And when you optimize your gut microbiome, we derive the benefits directly because at the end of the day, they, these microbes, they are there to support us, to help us, to make us better. So what optimizes your gut microbiome? What, how does eating more plants help us in what way? What, and where do we go from there? Well, I think, uh, so to really properly explain this, I, I feel compelled to just kind of take it from the top. Yeah, do it. And um, talk about the, what the gut microbiome is. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. If you, We have known for a very long time in science that we are not alone, that um, we actually are like covered all external surfaces. So like our skin, our mouth, inside our nose, um, and inside of our intestines, we have living creatures. They are as alive as you and I are, <laughs> but they're invisible. Mm -hmm. But like literally, if you take your thumb and you like take a look at your thumb, you will actually be looking at as many invisible microbes as the entire population of the UK, right there. That's crazy. And they're actually so much more densely populated inside our intestines, specifically our colon. Mm -hmm. um, our colon is our large intestine and living there are 38 trillion microbes. Now, 38 trillion is a hard number to wrap the mind around mm -hmm. because it's absurdly large. Yeah. Um, but basically, if you took all the stars in the sky and condensed this entire universe down and put it inside your colon, you would need to do that 100 times to equal the number of microbes that are living inside of you, me, the people at home, literally right now. Wow, that's a really good way to put it. That's really interesting because it helps you just get a better picture. <laughs> it's ridiculous yeah. how many there are. Um, and so these microbes, uh, mostly bacteria, we've been kind of told that like, bacteria are bad. That's actually a false narrative. Most of them are really, really good and want to help us. Um, there are fungi or yeasts. Uh, there can be uh, parasites in some cases. There can be these ones called archaea, which are the oldest living creatures on the entire planet. Wow. They have been around for 4 billion years. Crazy. And you will find them inside the colon of many of us. And, um, and then also there's parasites, which actually are not technically alive, but they are a part of this community and they help to shape it and affect it. Hmm. 
So if you go back not that long ago, go back 20 years, we knew very, very, very little about what was happening with these microbes. Mm-hmm. And I even think just 20 years ago, even just 20 years ago, um, because we lacked the technology at that point to study them. Mm-hmm. And so, honestly, like who cares? Right? Like they make poop. Yeah. They smell weird. How interesting can it be? Right? Like why would we care about the microbes that are a part of human waste? Mm-hmm. The pendulum has swung on poop. Like poop is hot right now. I mean, people are like fighting over, you know, who gets access to information in poop. What? Oh yeah. There's so much information in poop. That's it's so, ridiculous. That's so funny. Yeah, seriously. Like so so what's interesting is that like the computers of the nineties, like our three point five, you know, hard disks or whatever, could not handle the amount of information that exists in a person's bowel movement. Mm-hmm. And so you have to fast forward to about 2006 and there were two major things that happened. One is that the computers caught up. So now we can actually handle the information in poop. Mm -hmm. Again, 38 trillion microbes. And the second thing was that we developed laboratory techniques that gave us access. So prior to that, we could only grow things on like the old culture plates. And that was like, you know, basically like prehistoric style science and we needed new techno- new technologies. And that's what we found in 2006. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden we start studying and from a scientific perspective, it's like, yo, this is insane. What we are discovering, these microbes, again, they're not human and they're not actually a part of you they live inside you. Um, but these microbes, they are connected to the most like powerful, most important parts of the way that your body functions. Mm. So they're deeply involved in digestion, which is why like I'm convinced that every single person that I would see as a medical doctor, uh, they have issues, their gut microbiome because they're struggling with digestion. They have digestive disorders, mm. right? They're connected to our immune system. 70% of our immune system lives in the gut. And like literally a single layer of cells so thin that it would be taking a person's hair, like one single hair and like shaving it to make it even thinner. That's what separates 38 trillion microbes from 70% of your immune system. And they're talking to each other, literally right now. And when the microbes get confused, when they get messed up, guess what happens? The immune system gets confused. Mm -hmm. The immune system gets messed up. They're critical to our immune function. They're connected to our metabolism. I could walk you through the different ways in which they're connected to, you know, for example, type two diabetes that's exploding. Mm -hmm. High cholesterol, high blood pressure, heart disease, our weight. Uh, They're connected to our hormones, both in men and women. Connected to our brain, Mm -hmm. our mood. Our stress levels. Our stress levels. Mm -hmm. There's something called the brain-gut axis that we may want to talk about. Yeah. That uh, is like them communicating and working together. And then finally, uh, they actually have the ability to alter 
our genetic code. So most people expect that like whatever genes you have, that's just what you're born with. That can't change. It's your, it's your code. Mm-hmm. But what we've discovered is that it's actually very hard to predict like who's going to get heart disease, mm-hmm. who's going to get cancer using the genetics alone. And the reason why is because your genetic code is not like a pre-programmed uh, description of your health history. Mm-hmm. Your genetic code is like a switchboard. And someone gets to be flipping the switches of what genes are turned on or off. Guess who's running that? These microbes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like, here we are, big, powerful humans, and these invisible creatures that we can't even see that make our poop turn out to be the most important thing for human health connected to digestion, our immune system, our metabolism, our hormones, our brain, our mood, our genetic expression. These microbes do all of that and they're not even human. That's crazy. So then where do you go from there? Uh, Well, I think where we go from there is first we discovered this. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, they're there. Yeah. And they are connected to, you know, these parts of our body. Okay, so we've discovered these connections. Mm -hmm. Can we manipulate them? Mm -hmm. Can we shape our microbiome? Or are we just stuck with whatever we get? Are we just passengers? Or are we dictating and helping them or deterring them? A hundred percent. Yeah. And that was the question that existed. And it took us a period of time to really come to conclusions when it comes to that question. Like... Do we have the ability to shape these microbes? Um, and uh, it was around sort of 2012, 10 years ago, that we started to break through and see, oh, well, if you eat this way, this is the pattern. And if you eat that way, then that's the pattern. And oh, and exercise and sleep and stress and human interactions. Mm-hmm. and whether or not you have pets mm-hmm. and all of these different things, basically your environment, everything that surrounds you is not separate from who you are. Your environment and everything that surrounds you ends up manifest inside of you and expressed through your gut microbiome. That's insane. That's really, really incredible and powerful information. And so what did you find was the most helpful tools that you can do to optimize your gut microbiome so i think that there are um many different sort of things that we like directions that we could go with this okay Mm -hmm. i will be the first to admit that it's way too easy for me to overemphasize nutrition Mm -hmm. and make it sound like it's the only thing that matters totally when it's so not when it's not it almost feels like it's like they're equal, equally related. All the things like sleep, uh, your stress levels, are you getting adequate you know, movement or exercise, what you're eating? Do you feel like they're kind of equal in different ways? I think, uh, you know, I think that they're all very relevant mm-hmm. and they're part of this sort of equation that ultimately determines your health. Yeah. And um, they many times are synergistic. That's what we find. Um, so you don't want to do one and not the other. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, I, w- I would describe it as a, one of the common pitfalls that I've observed 
is people that go like super hard on one idea, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, fasting. I heard fasting is good for the gut microbiome. All right, like let me um, do 22 hours of fasting per day because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's going to fix all my issues. Yeah. Right? And it's like, okay, you're taking this one idea to such an extreme. Yeah. And there's so much low-hanging fruit yeah. that will deliver more powerful results if mm-hmm. you just acknowledge that these other things are there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's multiple different things. But coming back to sort of like how do we do this, we, we have to talk about nutrition first. We have to because every single thing that goes in your mouth comes into contact with this community. Yeah. So, and there is no question that they are being shaped by those choices that we make. Um, we can make choices that empower them, make them stronger, um, feed them, and allow them to do their job better. But we can also make choices that are basically the opposite and that starve them and poison them. What food choices starve them and poison them versus feed them and help them? Well, so you know this about me, Ellen, but for the people who are at home, perhaps just encountering me for the first time, which by the way, I hope there are some of you and I really am glad you're here. Yeah. Um, for those people, I think it's important to understand that I am a believer that we should find our passion for food, that we should find joy in food, Mm -hmm. and that we should run towards that. I so agree. I feel like the mind is so powerful and it really, the the way that your subconscious and your conscious feels like with the food that you're eating is impactful. That's part of the equation. 100%. And I I don't like framing because... Um, the whole idea of like glass half full, glass half empty, right? Mm-hmm. In dietary choices, we could label it as this is what you don't eat. Mm-hmm. And that's what you've been hearing for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. How's that working out? Yeah. Are we really healthier because you have been told to restrict and reduce and avoid? Totally. Right? Deprive? Is that is that making us healthier humans? Mm-hmm. I don't think it is. Right. Flip side. If I can tell you where the money is at and I can show you the way in which it connects to your gut microbes and because you then understand this pathway that is science-based but it's also seductive, very sexy, gets you excited, mm-hmm. then you can gravitate towards those foods. Yeah. Um, and that to me is the approach that I think like that's the way that I want to live my life. Yeah, focusing on abundance. Yeah. And not such a rigid mindset that can affect your mental health as well. Totally. So, um, so like, what is that? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we have to look, let's zoom in on the microbes for a moment, okay? Living inside of you, 38 trillion microbes. This is an ecosystem. This is no different than, like, some of the ecosystems that exist on this island right now. Mm-hmm. Or the Amazon rainforest or the Great Barrier Reef. Mm -hmm. And within an ecosystem, there are many different, you know, species and they live in harmony and balance. And what we want is we want to support the diversity within that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Because what we have found, Ellen, and this is true on the micro level, meaning your gut microbiome, 
But this is actually the complete truth on a macro level, meaning like uh, large ecosystems like the Amazon rainforest or even the health of our entire planet. Mm-hmm. What we have found is that the key to these ecosystems is diversity. When you have a wide variety of different organisms, different species, they each are bringing something unique to the equation and they can support one another. Mm-hmm. So that if you punch it in the face, it can shake off the punch because you have the entire team available for support. That's a great way to express it and explain it. Because a lot of times when people think about gut health, which I know we'll get into more either in this episode or in the round two that we're going to do, um, a lot of times there's this emphasis on elimination diets and you know the way to optimize your gut is to cut this food out, cut this one, cut this one, don't eat vegetables, especially raw vegetables. What's your thoughts on that? That's an, that's an inherently flawed ideology. Mm-hmm. And it's not grounded in science. It's grounded more in, in sort of the uh, intuitive idea that if something causes trouble for you, then it must be bad and it must be avoided. Mm-hmm. And we need to be very careful about that because if we, if we behaved that way, then none of us would exercise. <laughs> so true. Right? Yeah. So, um, and exercise, we all know how good that is for us, mm-hmm. but is there pain or discomfort that can take place in the process of building up your ability to yeah. exercise, right? The first time you go to the gym on January 1st, you're going to be sore. Mm-hmm. And you know that. It comes with the territory. Yeah. And you get beyond that and you grow stronger and then the soreness is gone. Mm-hmm. So uh, coming back to this ecosystem and this diverse diverse mix of microbes, we want to support that diversity. And they are as alive as you and, you and I are. And they're, they're, they're unique, like just like you and I, right? We are not the same person. Mm-hmm. Um, so these microbes are like that too. They have their own personalities. They have different skills and things that they're really good at. And they have different dietary preferences. Mm-hmm. They don't all eat the same thing. If you literally ate kale all day long, you would not have a healthy gut microbiome. Yeah, of course not. So, but what we find is that their preferred food above all else is fiber. Mm. Dietary fiber is unique because it passes through the intestine unchanged. We as big, strong humans lack the enzymes to break down dietary fiber. It's not possible for us to do it. Mm -hmm. If we were sterile and we did not have a microbiome, the fiber would come out the other end, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the narrative that people have been talking about anyway. Mm -hmm. But that's not true. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a bold-faced lie. Okay. Um, what we have discovered is that these microbes, they have the enzymes to break down and process and digest fiber. Mm-hmm. We can't do it, but our microbiome adds to our functional abilities, adds to our digestive capacity, mm-hmm. and allows us to break down fiber. And so fiber passes through the small intestine unchanged, enters into the colon and these microbes 38 trillion they're sitting there waiting and they're hungry and they get into a feeding frenzy and they break down they process the fiber and in the process of of doing that using their specialized enzymes they actually not only do they eat and they grow stronger and they become more capable of doing their job which is supporting human health yeah 
But in addition to that, um, fiber doesn't just kind of disappear and fiber doesn't come out the other end, or at least in the way that I'm describing it, fiber gets transformed and it stops being fiber and it turns into the most powerful, most anti-inflammatory thing that I've ever come across in all of my scientific readings, Ellen, Wow. which are short chain fatty acids. Fiber is transformed by our microbes to produce short chain fatty acids. And if you follow the path of these short chain fatty acids, you will stop thinking about fiber as being boring and you will see it as being completely sexy Mm -hmm. because it is not just a gut health game changer. It's a complete body game changer. Mm -hmm. These short chain fatty acids right there in the gut, they actually help to support the good guy microbes. They, many people have heard of like E. coli, salmonella, shigella. These are unhealthy microbes. Guess what? Short-chain fatty acids suppress them. Interesting. When people get injury to their gut microbiome, many of them will develop something that we can, we can call leaky gut. Mm-hmm. I would probably call it increased intestinal permeability, but we can call it leaky gut. Okay. There is the breakdown of the lining, that barrier that protects our body. It actually starts to break down. It has holes in it. We want to fix that. Short-chain fatty acids fix that. Mm -hmm. They connect to our immune system. I said that our gut microbiome talks to our immune system. Short-chain fatty acids connect to our immune system, transform it, optimize it. There are ways in which short-chain fatty acids are perhaps the key player in optimizing the the immune system in the fight against viruses such as COVID-19. Short-chain fatty acids work on our metabolism, help in terms of weight balance, cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes. Those are, by the way, all cardiac risk factors. Mm -hmm. And when they study people who have coronary artery disease, they find that they produce less short-chain fatty acids. So you're finding, you found that like the more diversity of plants that you're getting into your diet, the better that you're feeding these microbes. And then it's going to help you with your hormone health, your immune function, your gut health uh, in regards to your digestion, Everything. Everything that your gut microbiome is connected to. There are ways in which these the consumption of dietary fiber that empowers your microbiome and that leads to the release of short-chain fatty acids. There are ways in which this becomes like a pathway for human health. And the key you just alluded to this, Ellen, is that um, we don't want to just like eat grams of fiber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have never been one to like count how many grams of fiber do I have that makes it sound like oh if you just eat the same food all day long and you get enough fiber then you're good to go right or just take a fiber powder (laughs) take a fiber powder but that's not that's not actually true Um, what matters is recognizing that these microbes are individual they are unique just like us and they have their own dietary preferences and fiber isn't just fiber every plant has fiber but they are unique types of fiber. Mm -hmm. So unique plants feed specific families of microbes. Mm -hmm. Kale is going to allow certain people to eat and, you know, sweet potatoes will let other people eat. Mm -hmm. And then there's the avocado and we can go down the line. 
So what about for people who are eating in a way that minimizes the fresh fruits and vegetables they're eating and the fresh whole plant foods that they're eating and they're instead eating either majority processed foods or they're eating a high animal foods diet that restricts um, certain vegetables in their diet? So we have to start first with this concept of abundance and diversity and kind of hammer home how important this is, which is to say, so step one, uh, in this is not just like, hey, Dr. B's got this idea that you need to eat a diverse, abundant diet. Mm-hmm. This is actually scientifically validated. Mm-hmm. So in the American Gut Project, which is the largest study to date to allow us to make connections between our diet and lifestyle choices mm-hmm. and the health of our gut microbiome. This is, by the way, an international project. It's called American Gut, but like this is a global gut research project. And when they analyzed the data, they discovered that there was one single most powerful predictor of a healthy gut. And that was the diversity of plants in your diet. Mm-hmm. Specifically in that, in that study, it was people who were consuming 30 or more unique varieties of plants per week. And is there an argument or a case to be made that like, what if it's mainly diversity of whole foods, including animal foods? Like, are, is that restricting your microbiome's optimabil- optimization if you're not eating animal foods because you're taking that out of your diet? I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that that would be the case. What we have seen is evidence that the dietary fiber and other parts of the plants, like polyphenols, for example, which are the the, um, antioxidant chemicals in plants that give the plants their colors, right? Like yellow or red or purple, like those come from the polyphenols. Those have an effect on the microbiome too. Mm -hmm. So when we eat a diverse diet, all these microbes get to eat and they all thrive. When we carve out restrictions within our diet, for example, taking away legumes Mm -hmm. or taking away whole grains, well, there are certain microbes that were waiting for you to eat legumes and whole grains Mm -hmm. so that they could feast. And it becomes problematic. And again, once again, Ellen, this is not just like, hey, Dr. B's got an idea of what's happening in the gut microbiome. Yeah. This is scientifically validated. They did a, a study looking at people who had implemented the paleo diet. Now, of course, the paleo diet classically is restrictive of legumes and whole grains. Mm-hmm. And um, what they uh, found is that when they compared people who were eating the paleo diet to people who were eating a more standard, this study, by the way, was done in Australia, a more standard Australian diet, like not a plant-based diet, mm-hmm. but a more standard Australian diet. They found something disturbing, which is that the people who were eating the paleo diet had a major increase in a chemical compound called TMAO. Mm -hmm. Now, TMAO has been studied at the Cleveland Clinic, which is the number one heart center in the United States. And they have identified this as an independent risk factor for coronary artery disease, our number one cause of death. They've also connected TMAO to um, abnormal heart rhythms, to stroke, to chronic kidney disease. Basically, I'm describing things that are in the top 10 causes of death in the United States. That's interesting that that's being compared to like a standard diet via Australia, um, which would include more processed foods probably than the paleo diet. So why do you think it had that outcome? Well, so they found that this TMAO was like cranked up on the paleolithic diet 
And when they analyzed it, they found that the, the reason that TMAO was so high, even though the consumption, by the way, TMAO comes from the consumption of red meat. Mm. So the red meat consumption wasn't radically different. So it wasn't, a, the red meat was not explaining why the TMAO was cranked up. So they had to go deeper and they found that the gut microbiome explained it. There were certain changes that existed in the gut microbiome that were actually the gut microbiome turns out to be key to producing TMAO. Mm. That if you don't have the right microbes, mm. like they've actually done studies, Ellen, in vegans mm -hmm. and vegans don't make TMAO. Hmm. because we don't have the microbes because we're not eating red meat. Right. So we don't have the ability. You could, you could give a steak to a vegan. Mm -hmm. And at least on that day, they will not produce TMAO. That's interesting. Flip side, if you give a steak to a vegan every day for a month, they will eventually start to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyway, the microbiome turns out to be critical to the production of this dangerous compound, TMAO. In the study, they validated that. They showed that there were changes in the gut microbiome that explained why this group was getting more TMAO levels. And when they asked, what is it from a dietary perspective? Because it's not the red meat. So what is it? Mm -hmm. And they found that it was the absence of whole grains. That's so interesting. And going back to our earlier conversation about um, the wanting to find layers of evidence yeah. that all point in the same direction. So here I am pointing out that whole grains in this particular study were critical to reducing TMAO levels to protect a person from heart disease. Mm -hmm. And we have systematic reviews and meta-analyses looking at the health benefits of whole grains that have repeatedly in separate populations across the globe, Ellen, Right. Shown us that whole grains reduce our risk of developing coronary artery disease. Yeah, and looking at like cultures who have like the best longevity in that and in their inclusion of whole grains. Right. So, so th this is this this is where the evidence starts to fall in alignment. Where it's not just this one TMAO study. This is the TMAO study put into the context of overwhelming evidence that indicates to us that whole grains are crucial to protecting ourselves from coronary artery disease. The difference here is that in a human study. On, of people who are eating a paleolithic diet we're illustrating how this happens right and it like connected the dots it's connecting the dots we're filling in the puzzle so you're not just seeing the outside of the puzzle you're seeing the heart of the puzzle too well what about what about someone who's listening and they're like but dr b i you know tried eating this way i used to eat like you know the plants and vegan but like i feel so much better eating all these animal foods and like not eating vegetables or excluding whole grains from my diet what do you have to say to that well, I, I've taken care of so many of these people in my clinic. You know, this is my work as a gastroenterologist. Mm -hmm. This is what I've dedicated my life to. And um, what I have discovered time and time again is that if, if a person gets a benefit by restricting their diet of these foods, mm -hmm. I'm talking about whole plant foods. Yeah. If a person gets a benefit, many times they don't. But if they do, it is short-lived. Mm-hmm. And what they discover is that their gut problems persist and they get worse. Like over time. Over time. And they end up in a spiral. And it's a spiral where they are progressively restricting, restricting, restricting. And I just told you, mm -hmm. the number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity yeah. So it diet. makes sense if you're like restricting these whole variety of whole plant foods. Let's say you have a philosophy that you shouldn't eat 
these types of vegetables like cruciferous vegetables or legumes or grains and you're very very rarely eating foods like that then over time like your microbes are going to diminish and then if you do try to introduce it then you're like going to experience even more problems than you did before well because your your gut is adapted to the type of stuff that you're doing yeah right? so um i played uh several sports in high school and i would transition from soccer into basketball season mm-hmm. so i'm playing soccer and i'm an athlete right and i start and i flip over to basketball season and i'm winded mm-hmm. and i'm hurting right totally. i'm dragging because my body was not adapted to the mm-hmm. difference between soccer and basketball with exercise, your body adapts to what you're doing, right? If you work out your legs, but you don't work out your chest, you're going to get some big muscular legs, but you should not expect to have a big muscular chest because you're, you're not working on that, totally. right? Same is true for our gut. If you eliminate legumes, don't call me up and say, hey, Dr. B, I eliminated legumes for six months and now it's hard for me to reintroduce them. Mm-hmm. What the heck? Like, there's a reason why this happens. The reason right. why it happens is that your gut and its um, ability is directly correlated to the diet that you are currently eating. Mm-hmm. And so when you eliminate something from your diet, you are disabling your gut. You are reducing the ability of your gut to handle that specific food. And it gets worse and worse and worse as time goes on. And at the moment that you decide to intervene, you're going to face challenges. Yeah. That's so fascinating because it's just something that you don't really hear. There's all this talk about like elimination diets to like take out this, take out this, and this is better if you do this. Your your gut health will be better for this. And there's not much talk about the importance of the, the diversity of plants in your diet. Right. No, we, we really want that diversity of plants. And, you know, just to kind of hammer this just a little bit more, Ellen, a few things. We, I, I mentioned before that like I want people not to be running away from stuff. I want people to be running towards food that brings them joy. Right. And so, but there's an issue, which is that people are just flat out not consuming fiber-rich foods. Mm-hmm. If you look, the average American in the United States uh, is consuming about 17 grams of fiber per day. All right. And that's because only 10% of their calories come from plants. Mm-hmm. And 60% of their calories come from ultra-processed foods. Mm -hmm. Typically where we, you guessed about this before, we extract the fiber and we add in chemicals Mm -hmm. as preservatives, right? Or colorants or whatever it may be. And isolated foods. Right. And then we, and then, you know, we then like package it up and it like sits on the shelf for 12 months and it's the exact same food on the day that you packaged it. Like Mm -hmm. it has not degraded or you know, decomposed in any way, that's actually disturbing. Food is meant to be decomposed. Food has a life cycle. Mm-hmm. Like our ability to create something that never has a life cycle is, means that it's not really alive anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's 60% of the average American's diet. 30% of our calories come from animal products. You can consume all the animal products that you want. The average American right now uh, eats their body weight plus the body weight of a five-year-old child in animal products on a yearly basis. Wow. So the average intake of animal products is uh, meat, by the way, not including dairy. Not including dairy or yeah. eggs. So, um, and I believe not including fish, mm-hmm. but the average American is consuming 220 pounds of meat and the average American only weighs 170 pounds. Mm-hmm. So 170 pounds, their body weight, plus a 50-pound child. Uh, that's how much meat they're eating. Now, 
220 pounds of uh, meat, well, I can tell you how many grams of fiber there are in 220 pounds of meat. Zero. Mm -hmm. There's not even one. You get zero grams of fiber in meat. Mm -hmm. So there are things about meat that concern me about their effect on the gut microbiome. But one of the biggest issues is that it's devoid of fiber. Mm -hmm. And so we have constructed a diet that only has 10% of our diet that actually produces the fiber that our gut microbes need to thrive. And here we sit and the average American is getting about 17 grams of fiber per day. The recommended amount of fiber for a woman is 25 grams of fiber. The recommended amount of fiber for a man is 38 grams of fiber. And so here we are and 95% of Americans yeah. are not even getting the minimum recommended, recommended amount of fiber. Mm -hmm. If you are listening to this right now and you're saying, okay, so what do I do about it, Dr. B? It is so straightforward and simple. Because once again, I told you, I don't count grams of fiber. Mm -hmm. I count plants. I don't count calories. I count plants. Mm -hmm. I don't count macros. I count plants. Mm -hmm. Count your plants. I want people to be inspired to make diversity of plants the centerpiece of their dietary choices. You're in the supermarket. You're trying to figure out what you're going to pick up. You hear Dr. B from your podcast come through their waves and say, diversity of plants. Yeah. You are cooking chili. You're in the kitchen. You could keep it super simple, but you know what? Why not have five or six types of beans in there? Mm -hmm. Dr. B, diversity of plants. Mm -hmm. You are sitting down at the dinner table and there is a wide array of plants at that table and you get to choose which ones you like. But Dr. B says, diversity of plants. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way in which you can make it your own. And if you do this and you really focus on this and you make this an important part of your dietary approach, these concerns about inadequate fiber consumption, they will go away because you will be cranking up the plants in your diet. Mm -hmm. You will be moving towards a plant predominant diet. Mm -hmm. Possibly you will become like you and I, plant exclusive. Yeah. And this will transform your health, right. transform your life, bring you great joy. You don't have to make compromises. It can be in abundance. You can eat until you're full. Mm -hmm. And then you emerge from this delicious plate and you say, I feel great. And alive. And that's what Vibrant. I want for every single person. Yeah, totally. Well, you said that so well. I think so many people who are listening to this are in the realm of caring about their health. Most of my audience have, you know, I think most people can come to that consensus that like processed foods, ultra processed foods are not optimal for our health. The people who are listening and tuning into this type of podcast. And it really comes down to the decision and understanding of like, okay, what exactly is the thing I need to focus on here? We know whole foods, but is it more plants? Is it more animal foods? Is it more diversity? Like you're saying, should I be cutting out this or including this? And the way that you put that is like very clear and simple. And I think it's really fascinating. Um, let's back it up with some science if we could. Yeah. So uh, actually there was a study that came out in 2014 that anyone can check out. Perhaps we can put it in the show notes, but you can, you can find this on Google. You just quite simply type in the name David Nature 2014. Okay. This will be the first study to pop up. It was by Lawrence David, first name Lawrence, last name David. He's from Duke University. 
And going back to um, sort of the historical perspective on what we understood about the gut microbiome, if we today we accept that we can shape our diet with, or shape our microbiome with food. Mm-hmm. But if we go back to 2014, that actually wasn't really completely clear in humans. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. David, basically, like this was not a diet wars study. This was, hey, like I want to know what's going to happen here. So he set a group of people up with five days of a completely plant-based diet. No animal products at all. Mm-hmm. High in fiber. And then after a break, he flipped them over to a completely animal-based diet. Mm-hmm. Five days of that. No plants at all. Mm-hmm. No fiber. Mm-hmm. And what he did in these, like, these are the most sort of radically extreme polar opposite diets. He wanted to see, like, can I change a person's diet with this stuff? So he checked their microbiome every single day. Mm-hmm. Here's what he found. Within 24 hours, there were already measurable, detectable differences within the gut microbiome. Wow. The choices that you are making today are affecting your gut microbiome through today and on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. Within 48 hours, there were actually pretty significant changes in the gut microbiome. In five days on a plant-based diet, people changed their gut and there was a shift. There was a shift towards microbes that we often find in our probiotics. Mm-hmm. We take them as a capsule because it's like, oh, those are healthy. They're good for us as humans. You don't have to do that. You can just mm-hmm. feed them. And that's what they were demonstrating in this study. High fiber diet feeds the microbes. And going back to when you feed the microbes fiber, they transform it and release short chain fatty acids, which is exactly what happened. Higher levels of short chain fatty acids in five days on a plant-based diet. Flip side, what happened on five days of a diet that was exclusively meat, dairy, and eggs? It was, I would describe it as disturbing. Uh, Not moving a direction that I want to go with my health. Mm -hmm. There were the emergence of bacteria like biophil wadsworthia that has been associated with inflammatory bowel disease. Bacterioides species that have been associated with colorectal cancer are number two cause of cancer death in America. In five days, you are shifting your gut and Increasing your risk, not developing colon cancer, not developing inflammatory bowel disease, but you are setting yourself up where if you have the wrong genetic predisposition, you're setting yourself up for these problems. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to know if in the study, what kind of like uh, animal products they were using, like factory farmed or if it was like grass fed, grass finished or this particular study, dairy? you know, this was 2014. Yeah. So things that are trendy and popular now were not included in the study then because they were not trendy or considered to be important. Right. So they were consuming animal products. They weren't consuming grass-fed or, you know, raw dairy or something of that variety. But to pretend that you would see a radically different uh, result from substituting those things in is a bit silly. Okay, so let's talk about that. I actually want to ask you about that. So a lot of people will say, well, all these studies showing that dairy is not good for you is because they're using pasteurized dairy. None of them are like testing against raw, local, grass-fed 
dairy or grass finished beef and things. So like, what is your response to that? Uh, my response to that is that dairy has been very clearly associated with prostate cancer. And it's actually the, the protein in dairy that is most strongly connected to that. And the protein doesn't change. Whether it's pasteurized or not. No, it doesn't change. Pasteurization is the destruction of the bacteria. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, I am... So you know this about me, and I'm guessing the listeners probably at this point could figure out that I'm a big believer in fermented food. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in living food, right? Like raw food, raw plants. Mm-hmm. They have a microbiome. And I see value to introducing those microbes, mm-hmm. okay? So raw dairy has those microbes, right? But um, is cow's milk designed for human consumption? Like if we're talking about evolution being important, did cows evolve to support healthy humans? No. Um, that to me doesn't, like if, if the argument is gonna ignore the science, which is showing us that there are these risks with dairy consumption mm-hmm. and that those risks like there's not really a way to rectify it to make it say, seem that the microbes are the critical piece that are either there or not there and therefore would change everything mm-hmm. right when we're connecting it to the dairy proteins that are there yeah um then uh to me we're sort of deceiving ourselves yeah to buy into it, something that's really more narrative based right and if it's going to be narrative based then it's about the story oh well this, these are these are you know ancestral foods yeah right so people had cows right mm-hmm. people were just trying to survive yeah that i think is the most important piece that people are missing like they're looking at you know this ancestral diet and going oh look it's natural for us we've been doing this for thousands of years but not realizing that one cow's milk is physiologically designed for a baby calf like not for anyone else just like polar bear milk is for a baby polar bear right. monkey milk is for a baby monkey and just like human breast milk is for a human baby and it's exactly yeah. and then you take into the factors that it makes sense why our species can cows when they're traveling across lands trying to find places to settle down and where they don't know what the food source will be and to use cow's milk as a way to survive but that doesn't mean that's how we thrive a hundred percent and you know like when did refrigerators come along yeah (laughs) right like my dad when he was a kid they still got ice blocks Mm -hmm. they didn't even have an electric refrigerator Mm -hmm. so we lived through a period of time where there was food scarcity and having access to high calorie foods was advantageous mm-hmm. because it helped you to address the food scarcity issue that existed. Right. So, but um, you know that the the evidence from my perspective is very clear that that we are not living longer, healthier lives as a result of the consumption of these particular foods. Yeah, I still would like to see more like studies happen like that. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if it's possible, but it will help people who are kind of in this camp of like, well, of course, grass totally going to be healthier um, or getting like a truly quality source of animal products compared to like factory farm. Um, I think most people can agree that's better than factory farm. So if we could like see that studies and see how drastic a difference that really would be, it'd be cool to see more of that. But like you said, pasteurization doesn't make that big a difference. So if you're going to study something like applesauce versus a whole apple, the results shouldn't be that different in regards to your optimal health. Yeah, I mean, or the you know the issue with the applesauce is that there there can be other ingredients that you add in, so it's a right. little bit tough. But like flip side, it, do we expect that frozen broccoli to right. like have a radical? Because frozen broccoli, you know, they will blanch it, mm-hmm. right? Like it's already been cooked, mm-hmm. and then they freeze it. Mm-hmm. 
right? So the microbiome, the microbes are destroyed. Right. So do we expect that frozen broccoli is going to be like, you know, unhealthy? Yeah. And that that fresh broccoli is like this superfood? Yeah. No, they're they're both great. Mm-hmm. And if there's a difference that exists, it's a right. minor difference. Like right. I, I think people should eat frozen broccoli if they want to. Yeah. So, and I think r- real quick, Ellen, just to close out on this research study where they did the five days of the animal-based diet. Yeah. Not only were these changes occurring in the gut microbiome, but let me take this even a little bit further. Um, there was the absence of short-chain fatty acids. Mm. If you believe what I'm saying, then you have to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. And that's because there was no fiber in the diet. Mm-hmm. When you pull the plug on the fiber, which is what most Americans are doing, you can't expect your gut microbes to manufacture something without the ingredients. Right. And the last thing is, and this was, I think, quite interesting and disturbing. Um, in five days, they actually saw antibiotic resistance forming in the gut microbiome. Wow. Whoa. Okay. So how does that work? Um, how would you develop antibiotic resistance from eating animal products? Is that the animal product? Well, uh, I don't think it's actually the animal per se. Like if you were to go and go hunting, for example, Mm -hmm. I don't think you would develop antibiotic resistance from that. But in this particular case, 70 to 80% of antibiotics in the United States are not given to humans. They're a part of animal agriculture So the animal gets hopped up on antibiotics. Why? Because actually going back to the effect of our microbes on our metabolism, when you destroy the microbes, the animal gains weight. Mm. A pig can be fed the exact same food, the exact same number of calories. But if you hop it up on antibiotics and you destroy their microbiome, they will gain 15% more weight. And pounds translate into dollars in that mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. So in this case, they're eating uh, the animal bo- animal rich diet, and they're discovering that the antibiotics being administered to these animals is likely the cause of antibiotic resistance in the gut in just five days. So I think it's I think it's like fascinating to imagine that our dietary choices have an effect on us within 24 hours, and you could make a choice of a path that empowers your gut with fiber, that um, allows you to create these healing anti-inflammatory short-chain fatty acids through a plant-based diet. Or you can choose a different path that in just five days predisposes you to the risks of inflammatory bowel disease, colorectal cancer, and perhaps gives you antibiotic resistance. It's not a hard choice. That is so fascinating. I love this conversation. And I feel like there's so much more depth that we can go into. And we are going to do this with a round two. People are going to have to wait for a round two. But I'm really excited for round two because we're going to get into the nitty gritty of like, what is it exactly that heals the gut if you're struggling with gut issues? Why is it that, you know, if you will do elimination diets, you feel better for a certain period of time, things like that. And I can't wait to get into that. We'll talk about gluten. We'll talk about, oh my gosh, I can't even remember. I wrote a bunch of things down. But it's going to be so great. Well, I think the bottom line is that I I do want people to hear this, that, you know, I'm here today to get you like excited Mm -hmm. about eating this way. Mm -hmm. But there is no doubt that there are some of you who will come back and say, but Dr. B, I don't feel good. Mm -hmm. And I want to create a path that allows you to not like, not just to get rid of those feelings, I want you to feel great. Mm-hmm. I want to feel like you're thriving and in complete alignment. 
And so that's what we'll um, focus on when we come back for round two. But in the meantime, I just, if you don't mind, I'd yes. love to give a quick shout out Yes. to, if you are interested in these topics, my first book, Fiber Fueled, came out in May of 2020. It's so good. Everyone go read it, please. And it's been amazing, the support that I've received from people like yourself, Ellen. And I'm so grateful to everyone who reaches out to me and tell me how this book changed their life. Mm-hmm. But I felt like there was unfinished business at the end of Fiber Fueled from my perspective as a doctor. Because as I just said, there are people who want to eat this way and they feel that they struggle. And I, those are the people that I spend my life trying to help. And in your first book, you're talking about how those are the people who actually need this information the most. A hundred percent. These are the people who need this the most. Mm-hmm. Like the person who struggles the most to eat a plant-rich diet is also the person who actually needs it the most. Right. And so I wanted to create a resource, um, a tool, almost like a toolkit for gut health where you're this person or even if you're not that person and you just want to eat more plants and you want to do it in the most abundant, beautiful way that brings you great joy. Okay. I want to help all of you get there. Yeah. And so I created a cookbook. It's called the fiber field cookbook. It is a cookbook, 125 recipes, um, beautiful color photography, but beyond that, it also is a protocol for people who have food intolerances. I'm going to teach you how to identify and fix those issues. I also am going to teach you how to sprout, how to make sourdough bread, how to ferment food. And yeah, the food is delicious, just That's like in the first book. Amazing. I'm so excited for your second book. It's going to be such a hit, and I think it's going to help so many people. Both of those together really set the foundation for people how, how to heal their gut and to like understand what they're doing too. So for those of you who were excited by this conversation, um, check me out on Instagram, yes. Facebook, The Gut Health MD. Check out my website, theplantfedgut.com. Join my email list. And um, perhaps check out my book, Fiber Fueled, and pre-order the Fiber Fueled Cookbook, which comes out May 17th. And I will put those links below in the show notes and description box for you guys. So awesome. cool. Thank you so much for being here. This was such a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Ellen. It was great. We'll see you next time.